have a lot of things to talk about, but before we go into the sermon, I want to just encourage people today here that if there is uh, anything lacking in your relationship with your mother, that you would make things right even today. That maybe you make a phone call and tell her, Mom, I love you, or Mom, I forgive you, or whatever it is that you can do to bring reconciliation in that relationship, as we should do in all relationships, but in particular with our mothers. And so I just want to encourage you that way. Um, we hand, gave a handout last week of an outline of the, of the sermon, or the series of sermons, and um, the title of the series is The Church Growing in Love. I thought about it a little bit more, and then I thought, well, we could say it a little bit different as well. We could say the church growing in love together. But then we could say it another way as well, and could say the church growing together in love. So because if we are growing in love, that's one thing. If we are growing in love together... Uh, we might not get, we might not get there because we would have been disbanded before we grew in love. Are you with me? Because love, growing in love is a journey. And if people don't have the commitment to be together till they actually have grown in love, then we might never be together. So, so I, I changed the title a little bit to the church growing together in love. That is to say that as she and the members are committed to be together, that God will suit, see to it that we grow in love. And that is the ultimate purpose of the church, to grow in love. And yes, the... Um, the church is commissioned to share the gospel, to disciple, and so on and so forth. But that all comes, flows out of love. As you have love for other people, you are not so scared to tell them about Jesus because you love them that much. Um, if you uh, uh, love one another and, and you commit to one another, then you are not afraid to spend time together, so to be discipled. And then as you spend time together in this journey, you grow in your love and things just get better and better. And we'll look at that at my what? At my 10th point, we'll go into a little bit more depth that, that, there as we're looking at uh, Ephesians 4.16. I have mentioned 4.16 just a little bit, and I'm going to mention it still a little bit more. Then at my 10th point, I'll be going to develop that a little bit more than, than what we have been doing so far. So we have talked about the definition of the church. The church is a group of baptized believers, flawed to be sure, growing together in the love of Christ. We've talked about, okay, what is a believer? What does it mean, baptism? What, 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 the fact that we are flawed, how does that work out to be? That is to say that we are going to bear with one another because we are all flawed, and we're not going to be surprised if we, somebody hurts our feelings 
or somebody says something that's not so nice. It is not right on their part. That's why you would be offended. So the inspiration and the, the, the teaching is don't talk like that. And secondly, be a little bit more mature to not to be so easily offended. But if you are in a church where there are more people than yourself, you are going to be offended or you're going to misunderstand something or misinterpret something or misperceive something sometime down the road. Even if the church just exists of you alone, you might even offend yourself. Have you ever offended yourself? Oh, yeah. I have. Kenny, how, how, how are you capable of doing such a thing? Uh, yes. So, and then the, the idea was growing together. So we're still on, on the definition. A church is a group of people of baptized believers, flawed to be sure, growing together in the love of Christ. Believers, baptized, flawed, we're growing together. And in, in other places, it's called building. Paul uses the word uh, uh, growing and building. Peter uses the word building more often. Uh, together is a big word. Uh, and then with that comes also the unity. We talked about some definitions and so on and so forth. And we talked about all the ramifications of unity and togetherness. We'll come back to that a little bit later on when we're talking about the many members and the one body. We'll get to that. And then we grow together in the, in the love of, of Christ, the ultimate that 416 describes for us. And then we talked, that was, so the, the definition of the church was the first point. The second point was the church, a spiritual house. And we talked about that in First Peter uh, 2, 4, and 5. We talked about, thirdly, the church together, God's dwelling place. Talked about Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, although there's more scriptures, but we just focused on those. The church, fourthly, unity and oneness, unity and diversity. And we talked about that out of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 primarily, but we talked about that 1, 2, and 3 primarily, 4, 5, and 6. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Once again, when we talk about the oneness of the body versus the many members, uh, because in uh, five or so, six or so. It talks five and six. Ephesians four. It talks about the the oneness, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, uh, uh, God and Father who is all and 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 so on and so forth. So there we'll talk about the 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 oneness thing. So that has taken us through. At the fourth point. Now we are in the fifth point. And we'll be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 15 primarily. 16 is the cap off of the whole thing. So we might mention it, but we're going to develop it later on a little bit more. So we're looking right today at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And we're talking about the church, her working and mission. Her working and mission. So... Uh, Ephesians 4, we're looking at verse 11. And he gave himself some, and he, and he himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So, he himself, the Lord himself gave these offices to the church. And some people think that this is 
four offices. Some people think this is fivefold, five offices. Whichever way you argue, you win the argument. I have, I have no problem with what, the way you look at it. Uh, the one thing that I want to say to you is that these are different offices that the, that the Father, the Lord himself, has given to the church for a reason. And we'll find out in verses 12, 13, 14, and so on and forth what the reason is. So, but first let's talk about the apostles and the uh, prophets and the evangelists and pastor and teacher. Um, the, 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 the apostle is basically, uh, we would, today we would talk about apostles as in uh, missionaries. An apostle is one who was sent off. As opposed to the, the apostles of the days of Jesus that were by definition, were so empowered by God with special abilities that they could do uh, miracles and so on and so forth. That is not to say that if you are not an apostle today or then, that God couldn't do miracles through you. No, that's not true. God can do miracles through anyone he wants to, even through a donkey. So, uh, and he doesn't need anybody to do miracles. He can do them all by himself. But he can use people... To do miracles. And in the early days, he used the apostles a lot for that. They had a special power. Today, when we're looking at apostles, though some people call themselves apostles, I have always a, a little bit of a suspicion when somebody calls themselves an apostle. Um, you either are or you are not. If you call yourself an apostle and you are not, you're not an apostle. Even if you have a tag on your shirt or on your office you have a, 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 a plate that says apostle, God has made you apostle or not. But today, and, and when people call themselves an apostle, it is just so that they uh, either are an apostle, and so therefore they have the office of an apostle, and if they are not, it is just to portray to other people that maybe they are uh, a little bit more spiritual than they really are, and they want everybody to know that they are very spiritual, and they call themselves an apostle. Um, but typically, it is a sent of one. So today, we would call somebody who's a missionary is basically the idea of an apostle. Okay? Go look it up in the Greek. And then, and prophets. Uh, sometimes we misunderstand the idea of a prophet. We always, not always, most of the time when I hear people talk about prophets, it is people that can tell things for, of the future in other people's lives. That is not all there is to, in a prophet, to a prophet. A prophet is one who can speak to today, and that is primarily the idea of a prophet, who speaks on behalf of God today to God's people. There is also an element of a prophet who can foretell the future. So it's not just about foretelling, but it's also about forth-telling. And primarily, a prophet is one who forth-tells the Word of God. He is one who speaks the Word of God to God's people. And, 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 and part of that, some of that, is talking about the future. Okay? Are you with me? All right. And some evangelists. Who are evangelists? 
Evangelists are people that are gifted of God to share the gospel. And with that come maybe more results than people who don't have the gifting of evangelists. Every Christian is supposed to evangelize. But not every Christian is an evangelist. Are you with me? Okay. So we're all supposed to share Jesus out there. But not everybody is gifted with the gift of evangelism. So that when you remember Don Babin? Don Babin is an evangelist. When he speaks, people get saved. I am not an evangelist, though I evangelize. But when I speak, on average, people get encouraged. And not everybody gets saved. Don and I could probably, probably say the same thing. And in, in, in my instance, they get encouraged. In his instance, they get saved, whatever. Or the ones that were not saved. If you're already saved, you're not going to get saved again. But you know what I'm saying. And then the, the idea of the office of pastor, teacher. Some people consider it one office. Some people consider it two offices. Whatever, the way you consider it, it's not that important to me, except to say that a pastor is by definition a teacher. But a teacher is not necessarily a pastor. Okay? I ask the pastor when we have guest speakers, it is one of my great ple pleasures and privileges that I get to spend time with our guest speakers. Uh, Cecil Peasley was here not too long ago. It's a delight to spend time with him, as you well know, Darlene. And, uh, and, and we just talk about all kinds of things. And it is really <clears throat> revealing the things that he shares and, and some questions that he might ask. And we, we talk and talk and talk, and it's very wonderful. And you remember a, a, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And um, he's a great teacher, but he's not a pastor. By his own confession, he told me personally, this, I didn't read it. I didn't hear it from somebody else. I heard it from his own mouth when I was driving and he was sitting right there in the, in the passenger seat. He says, I could never do what you do. So, so a pastor, by definition, is a teacher. But a teacher is not necessarily a pastor. So why did God give these offices to the church? What is the working of the church? He gave these offices to the church for this. Verse 12 says this. For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. So he gave it four Four, four. He gave us three reasons. He gave these offices for the equipping of the saints, for the preparing of the saints. God wants people that he has gifted in particular areas. He wants them to teach the church in those areas so that the church can grow and be equipped to do the work of the Lord. So that those people in the church can also discover what giftings that God has given them through these teachings. So the teaching of these saints, those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are part of the church, the teachings to them is to be equipped so that they can do the work of the ministry. 
And many churches think, many churches people think, that the pastor is supposed to do the work of the ministry. Well, he is also one that does the work of the ministry. But every single believer is supposed to do the work of the ministry, and that is why he gave the offices, so that each one can be equipped to do the work of the Lord. So he goes on to say, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that the saints can be equipped, so that they can do the work of the ministry. This is not an excuse for a pastor to, to chill or to sit out. He is part of the church. So he is part of doing, the ones that are doing the ministry. But he is part of the ones that are equipping others to, do, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And so that the body of Christ, which is us, the church, the church at large, as well as the local church, so that the body of Christ can be edified, can be strengthened. Are you with me? Okay, so... This is important to know because often um, when leaders are called upon to equip other people, they are not really equipping them. They are often just talking about it. So remember, we did, how many weeks did we do? 10, 12 weeks of trying to equip people into discipleship uh, on Sunday nights. We had a lot of things that we talked about concerning discipleship. And remember, one of the things that I said to you was, just to hear about discipleship is not, not enough. you got to now go do it. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, the disease in the church, I call it a disease because I think it is a disease, is that we listen, but we don't do. And the victory, my brothers and sisters, is in the doing what you've listened to. It's not just the listening. We are going to have a marriage seminar. This coming week, the 18th and the 19th. And we're going to talk a, about a lot of things. Encourage people to do a lot of things. But if you don't do as a husband what the Lord is asking you to do, you're just dreaming about a good marriage. Yes. Does it make sense? I have 10 students who want to have a, a college scholarship. So I say, oh, I had a dream this week. Or, or somebody told me, but, but it might have been a dream. But maybe somebody told me that you practice two hours a day each day this past week. They say, no, I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry, it was a dream. <laughs> I just dreamed. Because, see, now I think now you are dreaming. Because if you don't put in the practice, you're just dreaming about a, a college scholarship. There's a lot of work that goes along with that. Or somebody says, hey, I want to win Wimbledon. Well, I grew up wanting to win Wimbledon. 
And I worked like a dog. And even though I worked like a dog, I was not guaranteed anything. Well, I got a college scholarship. Hey, pretty good. Full scholarship. But I wasn't even close to winning Wimbledon. It's tough out there. So when we want to be good husbands and good wives, we got we to gotta do some things besides just listening to tapes and to teachings and so on and so forth. Uh, when Jesus is asking a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church, he's supposed to do some things that show love. Matter of fact, one of the definitions that I like to use for loving somebody is doing things for the well-being and welfare of the one that I say that I love. I can talk all I want about loving my wife. I love my wife. But if I don't do anything that shows that I love her, I'm just talking. So the, the equippers, those who God has gifted, they come to the church and tell the church, this is the type of thing that you need to be doing. If you're going to, I can, I'm not an evangelist, so I'm not the one to teach on evangelism, though I can. If I ask somebody, if I teach a class on evangelism, it doesn't make any difference till that class actually goes and evangelizes. Yes? So this is the inspiration that I want to give you. Once again, to do when, 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 when you hear this morning, or any morning, or any evening, or any tape that you listen to, or any teaching that you listen to, when there is a teaching that says, okay, you got to do this, then go do it. And God will enable you, and you will grow in your spiritual walk. Okay, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of, of the body of Christ, God wants to make His church stronger and greater not greater as in, when I'm talking about the local church, not greater as in God wants us to have more people in the church over here in this building, though he may want to. But it's about the ones that are already here, for them to be, uh, be becoming more like Christ, become more mature in their walk. And part of the maturity in your walk is that you also learn to go share your faith with other people. So... Uh, not to be confused. Verse 13 says this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It says it right over there. <clears throat> Let us look at the words because God doesn't waste words. Words have meaning. So when he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, that means that we are not all in the unity of the faith, yet. We're not there yet, yes? Does that make sense? Because he is, this working of the ministry uh, to, to build the body of Christ is going to, work, is going to go on till we all come to the unity of the faith. Till then. So that means, till then, these workings are taking place. It is a journey. We're on a journey to, be, to come in the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is different from the unity of the Spirit. Yes? Remember, in 4.3, we talked about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? The unity of the Spirit is different than the unity of the faith. 
the unity of the faith means that we all are coming to a mature place of understanding and walking like Christ himself. We're not Christ and never will be Christ, but like as unto Jesus Christ. That is the goal that God has for us, that in every way that we, we look more like Jesus Christ in our walk. The unity of the faith. So, then he's describing a little bit this unity of the faith idea, uh, what, what more or less, what, what is part of it? Let me put it that way. Uh, so that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God has to do with a, a more uh, intimate and uh, a deeper knowledge, uh, full knowledge of the Son of God. So that is a journey that we're on to get there, to come to the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To a perfect man, perfect over here does not mean a, a sinless perfection. It hardly ever, it never, hardly ever means sinless perfection, unless we're we're arguing about sinless perfection. That you might mean sinless perfection. I say no, that doesn't mean that. Catartizo is the word used over here that has the idea of uh, to prepare something for what it was, uh, or or repair it for what it was meant to be. So, uh, to a perfect man, that we might become mature people in Christ. That we might, this is what the Lord has in mind for us when we get saved. That we might become people, that when they, we, the, in, the, in the way we walk on the face of the earth, we're walking like Jesus. That is why they called people in the, Old, in the New Testament in the old days, Christians, little Jesuses. Because they were walking like him. This is what the, the Lord has in mind for us. As a church, that we, we, we become equipped and, and grow in, a, in such a way that we become like Jesus. Not only out there for the world to see, but in here for each other to be encouraged and to be loved that way. The church. The church. It is not about attendance. When people think about church, it seems to be always about attendance. How many, you know, how is your church doing? You know what they're asking? How many people are coming? Sometimes I act like I'm not understanding. <laughs> Say, well, we have a great worship team. Um, financially, the church is, you know, we're not rich, but we're, we're solid. We're not in debt. Our forefathers have done increasingly well. We, we don't owe anything. We don't owe no mortgage or whatever. They've done increasingly well, so we, we do, we're doing pretty good. Well, <laughs> and then it comes to the question, how, how many people on Sunday morning? Oh, oh that's what you mean. Okay. <laughs> See, because that is not what I mean. When a, a, a group of Baptist pastors get together, they're always talking about building a church. And I always have to tell them, I'm not building a church. Nor could I. With the help of God, I'm trying to build people. It's about people. People. 
Well, the numbers, they reflect people. No, we have to, we've already talked about the numbers game a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go over that. But it's about people. It is about David walking more like Jesus and Alina walking more like Jesus. So that in their relationship, it is more like Jesus. When people out there see them walk together, wow, those are weird folks. Look how kind they are to one another. Look how courteous and considerate they are in their relationship. That is sort of weird these days. But this is not how the way God had designed it. That should be a norm for Christians. That should be a norm for his people, for his children. To be a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it says, it, so in, 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 in other words, there are a little bit, that to the measure of the fullness of, of, the, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To that measure is what he wants us to grow like. And to that measure is what he has given the offices to the church of apostle, prophet, uh, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher. That is why he's given the offices that they might be developed and equipped and prepared for the work of the ministry so that the church can grow to be more like Jesus. And I want to tell you. So when they ask me how is your church doing, even though they mean numerically, I say, well, we're growing nice and slow and numerically. And I love it that way because I want to take care of my people. Uh, I don't want 500 people here all of a sudden that we cannot take care of. So nice and slow growth is, is very good. But the thing that I'm most excited about is I see that people are desiring to grow in Christ. And they are growing in Christ. So, whoa. That's a pretty good place to be. Verse 14 says this. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What that means is this, that if we don't grow in our faith, then there is a chance that we remain like children in the faith. Children in the faith who are easily deceived and easily swayed by smooth-speaking people that are laying in wait to deceive you. Are there such people around anywhere? They're all over the place. All over the place. And some of them are well-meaning people. Well-meaning people. But they don't have the right message. And they're waiting for a chance to get their message to you so they can deceive you. And so when you are one that has grown in Christ to a maturity level, you know what the faith is, what is involved in this, and you're not easily swayed. This is Paul speaking, my brothers and sisters. It's not me. I'm not making this up. He's saying that we should no longer be children. That could be replaced by so that for the purpose of that we should not be any longer children in the faith, but that we should grow up, tossed to and fro by every wind of, of doctrine, by every sort of a teaching that comes along. We're thinking, whoa, what a teaching. 
And all along, they, they're trying to get you away from the faith. Many brothers and sisters, sad to say that this happens at universities. Universities. Your children go to the university to be swayed by people that are anti-Christ. I'm not saying every professor is anti-Christ. But what I'm saying to you is, there is plenty of them. That if you write a paper, no matter how well it is written, no matter how well it is substantiated, no matter how perfect English is used, no, no matter how grammatically it is correct, they just give you a C or a D. And if you ask, this has happened just recently in a conversation I had just recently. And if, if, they, if the student asks, well, how come I just have this and this, I have a, a, a C or a D? The teacher says, well, I didn't agree with you. I mean, blatantly. I didn't agree with you. So, yeah, if a student are like that in, in enough classes, and if they are Babes are still children that are easily tossed to and fro, back and forth, by whatever teaching comes along. Okay? This is what Paul is talking about. That those children of yours would not be easily swayed by whatever teaching they, they, they want to give out there. Well, how could they have known that, right? Because that was going on there too. Yes. By Edward Docton, by the trickery of man in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Okay, the, the next verse is 15, and it goes on to say, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Growing up into him who is the head, Christ. But speaking the truth in love. In other words, have you ever had somebody rip you and they just say to you, I'm just speaking the truth in love. No. You might have spoken the truth, if that. But it certainly was not in love. My dear brothers and sisters, unless we speak the truth in love, we, we haven't done anything to redeem another person. And remember, all, if somebody is at fault or is swayed a little bit or is off the track a little bit, all of what we're trying to do is for redemption's sake, is not to rip them. Even when we correct them, even when we rebuke them, it is for the sake of that person, not for my sake. If it was for my sake, I'm venting. If it's for their sake, I'm, I'm rebuking or correcting. And that has a different, complete different tone and posture than when I'm venting. So even some people, when they share the gospel, they do that in an obnoxious way. For, for the people who are listening, this is just another obnoxious presentation. But when you tell the truth in love, and given a little bit of time, they're seeing that you are different. You disagree with them. They disagree with you. But you love them. 
arguing, walking away in a huff and upset. Speaking the truth in love is an, a, a spiritual art, so to speak. It is speaking the truth in love because what is inherent in that a little bit, not completely, but a little bit, is that somebody needs to be spoken to. Right? Yes? Uh, and the, the encouragement that Paul gives, if not a warning, is do it in love. If you want good results, if you want redemptive results, if you want results that will draw them into the kingdom or expand the kingdom within them, do it in love. When you're dealing with young people, do they mess up every once in a while? Yeah, of course they do. And they would say the adults do too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Adults too. Nobody put me up to do this. Um, so then sometimes what you want to do with the young people is rip them. Hey, tell the truth in love. Tell the truth in love. You have far better results than when you rip them. I promise you. When, you, when Paul says, don't provoke your children to wrath or to anger, that's what he's talking about. You rip them and you are provoking them to wrath. You're getting them upset. Their hair is standing up on their neck because of your correction and because of what you did or what you said to them and the, the way you said it to them. But if you do it in love, it is more readily received. And now you're going places. Now you're, you're getting where, somewhere with, with the young folks. Okay. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things. This is it. It may grow up. There's a reason in him who is the head, Christ. And then 16, we're just going to go through 16 quickly, then we're done. I'm not going to teach a lot on that because later on at number 10 or whatever the number is, we're going to develop it more. From whom Christ, the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does a share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself, in love. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to quit on, on this, but I have another one to share with you quickly so I can make another point that we don't have to go there next week. Uh, so since we're going to be short on this, since we're going to be short on this, then, 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 then that will be okay. Uh, so you see that every part does, does its share. As every part does its share, it says that it will cause the whole body to grow so it can love itself better. That's it. That's the idea of the church. That ultimately, she will love herself more. So, where are we now? Let's look at, uh, uh, can we look at uh, uh, Ephesians 5, uh, 1 and 2. I think, is it 5? Or is it Galatians? Yes. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. So here, here is where I, I, I'll stop. Verse 1 says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Verse 2 says this. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Love like that. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul is saying over here, my dear brothers and sisters, that uh, 
when we love each other, when we walk in love, as Christ was a sweet-smelling savor to the Father, when He gave Himself sacrificially, He says, when we walk like that, then we are to the Father a sweet-smelling savor. I was going to bring a little bottle of uh, uh, cologne so I could give you the sweet-smelling savor. But I thought that maybe some of you might be allergic to it or something like that, and uh, so I didn't bring it. But I must tell you, I, I, am I the only weird guy that has several, uh, several aftershaves or colognes? Or, no? I, I, no? Okay. How many do you have, David? One. He's got one. Okay. You got many? <laughs> I got like eight or nine. And then one time, about three or so years ago, I bought one that I saw in the store. And it was in my mind, it was going to be number six or seven. But as I was sitting with Sybil and we were talking a little bit and it got a little bit cozy together. I had tried that number six or seven on me, and she says, oh, I like it. It jumped to number two right away. <laughs> right, right away, jumped to, to number two. So I was going to bring that one, but, uh, and then the number one that is, uh, how was the name of it? Air de Termes or something like that. Uh, Air de Termes. Expensive, but I love it. So I was going to come when, when we're walking in love as Christ has loved. We, can't, we cannot be Christ, but we can love like him because he's going to enable us and, and, and empower us to do it. Then the father says, psh, psh. you smell good. Psh, psh. Oh, you smell good. I, I, I want to smell good in the nostrils of, of my father. I don't want to smell putrid in the, in the nostrils of my father. So I want, to, I want to love like Jesus loved, and I want to do anything that I can that is my part to do so that God can also do his part for me to love better. I want to love my wife better. I want to love my wife more. I want to love my children more. I want to love my grandchildren better. I want to love my brothers and sisters Better and more. That the father might go. Psh, psh, psh. You smell good. I was going to ask you to tell your neighbor. You smell good. <laughs> Somebody goes. Oh really? But this is a spiritual smell. This is not a physical smell, okay? <laughs> Let us stand and pray.